welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. We are here with another book review episode. We are in episode number 63-63 in the Penguin Little Black Classics Collection. That is a set of 80 pieces of world literature, and we're reviewing them all in order. Number 63 today. Amanda, are you excited? Always. I think so. I... (laughs) I don't know if I'm fully excited for today. I'm kind of excited. I think it'll make for good discussion because we have today some Bronte and specifically Emily Bronte. Uh, There were three pretty famous sisters. Actually, I I don't know that. I'm just saying things now. Did they (laughs) become famous in their day? Were they well known or did they write under pen names? Uh, That's a good question. I'm pretty sure that they were known in their day. And um, I think it was Charlotte Bronte, actually, who really did not like Jane Austen, actually. Mm, Yeah. And Jane Austen, I can't remember if she critiqued, would she have critiqued Withering Heights? Did she write anything about that? Not not sure if the years overlapped. It all blends together. Amanda is the resident (laughs) Anglophile, or as close (laughs) as we have to one. Maybe I won't categorize you in that group, but I'm certainly pretty far from that. So if (laughs) if anyone were to know, it would definitely be you. I've encountered some of the Bronte sisters' writings throughout, you know, education, my time studying literature, but I can't say I'm super familiar with it. I know most people know Withering Heights, a book I'm assuming you know pretty well. Yeah, that's... um a really that one is actually written by Emily Bronte who who's also the mm-hmm. poet. So yeah, that one I love and then um, okay. there's also Jane Eyre who is by I think Charlotte and then also there's um Viette and Agnes Grey was written by Anne Bronte. So, oh, yeah, okay. quite a few. Yeah, Jane, now that you say it, Jane Eyre is probably even more well-known than Withering Heights, but, you know, either it could end up in an AP English curriculum or something, or in mm-hmm. a college class. Some kind of survey of English literature class wouldn't be, they would not be unfamiliar to that grouping. Yeah. Today we've got some Emily Bronte poetry, and it was just a collection of poetry, so no short stories or nonfiction or anything else, and... It was a bit of a whiplash from the haiku that we reviewed in the last episode, that's for sure. You and I briefly (laughs) chatted about that before we hit record. I'm sure we'll get into the stylistic bits and how that contrasted with last week. But let's begin our review episode as normal with one-sentence simile reviews. Let's get back to our comfort zone, Amanda, and why don't you go first? I'm probably going to just put the pressure on you to go first this week. Um, Start (laughs) us off with your simile review and what you thought of this one. Sure. Um, I said reading this is like listening to a teenage emo preacher's kid. Um, Oh, okay. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of um, discussion of like the the downside of death and the fear with death, but then also the idea that there is life after death, which is the the preacher part of that, right? And the emo part being like so sentimental and and just all the emotions that are wrapped up in that um and i would Mm -hmm. say that teenage just because of the angsty nature of a lot of the poems definitely um, yeah Yeah. (laughs) so uh it was just a lot of of the feels um and a lot of morality all tied in one (laughs) <laughs> the the preacher's kid is probably the crucial little addendum there because mm-hmm. of how often these turn into meditations on death and the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And she seems, is it explicitly Christian? She seems to believe in after in afterlife. Some I, I don't know if it ever mentioned heaven. Now that I think back on it, I'd probably have to dig in to prove or disprove that. She does mention heaven in a couple okay. of her poems. Yeah. Okay. I feel, yeah, because that, that was hell. my reading. 
Yeah, that was my reading. I just couldn't remember if that was really grounded or if that was something I was just picking out of the air. Yeah. Yeah, my, my similar review is has a similar weight to it. Do you know who Ken Burns is, the super famous documentarian? No. What did he well, do? I mean, and I say super famous. I mean super famous in sort of a grand historic sense in that he's just made these monumental documentaries that are 10-hour epics about certain periods of Americana and American history. He did a Vietnam War one. That's the only one I've seen all the way through. His other ones, he did one about country music, one about baseball. He just kind of buries himself in topics and then loses himself and produces these incredibly researched, like takes 10 years to finish that kind of endeavor-like documentary. And I thought reading this was sort of like approaching an endeavor like that where you know you should probably consume it just because you want to be knowledgeable you want to be you want to be immersed in the in the thing you want to be more enlightened or more knowing about something but you hesitate a lot and i feel like with his documentaries i end up starting them and then stopping and then starting again and then putting it down and it just has a certain weight to it that when you approach it can be intimidating and you end up not maybe enjoying it as much as you probably just should sit back and enjoy it. And it takes on a kind of yeah, intensity or weight that holds you back a little. And mm-hmm. that's how I felt reading these. It was kind of like from poem to poem as I would turn a page to a new one, I had to do a certain amount of a mental check just to think, am I prepared for this? Do I, you know, am I ready to plumb the depths of this? Am I prepared to engage at the level mentally that I'm going to have to engage to really read this. I found them to have that kind of like density to them. They were, could be a bit imposing at times, I guess. And, and it's interesting too. I mean, the, the topics, right. The themes that she chooses are, are mostly about like mortality. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that same sense when you were reading the Wilfred Owen poems? The no, poems? no. And I think, and I think, and I tried to isolate this in the quote section that we'll get to, I, I think it's it was just stylistic. The mm-hmm. the World War One poetry was so s- simple in terms of its flow, and mm-hmm. it didn't do certain rhetorical things that older poetry often does. Which again, I'll, I pulled some examples. I'll talk through. And when you're bombarded with those kind of style decisions for a long period of time, it I, f- I find it weighs on me a bit. And I think that's just the unfamiliarity. That a current reader, such as myself in 2020, would have to reading in a form so old or a style now considered so old. And so I think it was a lot of just, it was the weight of that. I mean, and that's the other thing too. I didn't come out of any of these feeling like deep sorrow for mankind. And I did in the World War One stuff, I think just because of the accessibility comparatively. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. I think, where I stand on that. Yeah. And maybe I should have. These are, like you said, thematically coherent, but definitely dense, and they are bogged down by by the issue of mortality. It's kind of the one through line throughout the entire piece, the one key motif or idea. Did right. you find any connections then to 2020? We always try and start off with making these some kind of relevant uh, point or connection because some of these were written so long ago. Yeah. Um, well, I saw that yours was about mortality, so I tried to think of something different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I came Why up bother? with, <laughs> with um, <laughs> I came up with morality, which also ties into the, okay, the simile yeah. that I gave, where it, it can come off a bit preachy. But um, if you are uh, somebody who is interested in um, the studies in Christianity, and, and especially like how some people might uh, view afterlife versus um, current life, you might be interested in these poems. Um, just 
as long as you're okay with kind of being like preached at a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think that her messages and ideas do come through pretty clearly. We've, we've expressed our own dislike of that style of heavy handed writing, heavy handed moralizing before on the pod. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that, I think that comes up here. I felt that less again, I think just because I spent a lot of time in this trying to keep my head above water in terms of interpretation that I, and that's what happens, right? When you lose yourself in an intellectual exercise, it doesn't always result in deep feeling. And I don't think I had much deep feeling while reading these. I think a lot of it was just trying to make sure I didn't misread something or trying to make sure I didn't mix up two ideas or lines or something like that. But no, my connection was it's mortality. I mean, it's, it's the theme of almost every poem or if not a theme, like a motif And I think it talks about death in many different ways. Like it's not just about her own impending doom. It's about when loved ones die, when lovers die, friends. There's probably some about family in there that I maybe didn't pick up on or did. I think it makes for maybe not the most, uh, I was going to say it makes for dour reading in 2020. If this is a time when you're concerned about your own well-being and livelihood, and you probably rightfully should be in some manner, right? Maybe mm-hmm. not extreme, you know, urgency, but at least in the back of your head, it's probably there. Right. I don't know if this is going to make for comforting reading, and perhaps you don't want to be comforted. Perhaps you like to lean into those emotions, and you don't want to ignore them. You want to stare them down. I respect that and understand it. So this could make for, uh, I keep wanting to say comforting, uh, relevant reading. It could make for a connection across time where you realize that people have been concerned about this as long as they've been cognizant of it. And so there's a certain camaraderie or kinship there, but yeah, it's not going to lift you up. I don't think. I think that's an interesting point too, because especially coming off of last week's when we were talking about um, Basho's haiku, where he does also talk Mm -hmm. about death, but it seemed like even though he was talking about death, it was a very positive, like, enjoy life because, you know, it's it's not always lasting. And, you know, there's all this stuff to experience beforehand. I didn't get that same, like, comfort that we had when we were reading the haiku. We didn't have that same comfort in in these ones because she also points out, like, how how life is kind of, like, oftentimes you feel hopeless and there's a lot of despair and stuff. So and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot less a lot positive. Her, <laughs> when a lot of her poems do resolve in the grand Christian tradition of at least we are promised heaven. And so we will meet again in a better place and better time. It yeah. is, it is a logic and baked into the religion that right. there is a time and place beyond here where things will be perfect and transcendent. And we can just sort of, suffer in the dirt here on earth so that we can achieve that state later on that, you know, at least I won't see you again now, but I will wait for you or you'll wait for me in heaven and we'll meet again. So Mm -hmm. that, I think that does resolve a lot of these poems. So I think that message, you know, again, take it or leave it. If you're, if you're a Christian and you believe in the afterlife and hit that version of heaven, then I think there might be some things to connect to here. If you don't, then this might just come across as, like you said, a depressed person kind of preaching at you about, you know, life is miserable, but heaven's coming up. So yeah, I think you can make connections as you will. Mm-hmm. Let's dig into some of the style. This is when we get to quotes for clarification. We like to do a deep dive, or at least a partial deep dive in the reviews and try and dig into what we liked or disliked about the style of writing that was on display. Do you want to go first today? Do you feel like you have a strong quote that represented something important to you? Sure. Um, so I was 
trying to find a stylistic aspect that I liked, but I, I found that mm -hmm. I found a couple more that I, I didn't necessarily like. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the ones that I noticed was um, her motif that of, of wind and water. And it is like throughout mm -hmm. the majority of her poems. Um, and it's just, it gets a bit tired for me and almost trite just because it's the same image that she creates over and over and over again. It's like she, she's in a little, she's created a pocket of Im imagery that she can't get past in her poetry. So um, on, in my book, I have actually, let me just say that I have a different book from you where it's actually the best yeah. poems of the Bronte sisters. So okay, I was yeah. able to pull the majority of the poems from my book that I already had. And then I just had to find like, six or seven poems online okay yeah um so this one is from the poem a death scene and it says i hear it it's billows roar i see them foaming high but no glimpse of a further shore has blessed my straining eye believe not what they urge of eden isles beyond turn back from that tempestuous surge to thy own native land so there you see a lot of imagery with the wind and with the water and the storms and then like the, the calm peacefulness of the afterlife. Um, and this is an image that she uses quite often. <laughs> like I can't emphasize right. that enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot right. of her poetry. <laughs> you know, we joked last week, not joked, maybe we did joke about it, but we definitely referenced last week how in these in the haiku it was almost seemed like you have to have a reference to the seasons and that the seasons are sort of the symbolic thing that helps display mood and change and ideas right uh, we'll double down this week i feel mm -hmm. like the seasons showed up in every single poem almost they mentioned yeah. summer changing to winter or winter being death or it just felt like there were some certain again motifs or ideas that were really played up uh, in a consistent way i guess but yeah they you, they will berate you here with them yeah, it's, it wouldn't be so bad. Like with the haiku, yes, there was a consistent motif with the seasons, but the way that he used the seasons was uh, is refreshing because each time it was a, with a different image. But with, mm, yeah. with Bronte, it's just the same image over and over and over again. And she doesn't really do much right. as far as like refreshing it for the reader. So it's, that's, that was my real beef is, I mean, I think it's cool when authors like use a particular image um, that they can like tie all their pieces together, but you want it to be something that is different in some small way each time you come upon it. You don't want to just be like, oh my God, it's the same thing. Okay. I get it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, there's a certain, well, I'll get to this in the things I liked. There is a certain cohesion to this collection that they put together that I sort of admired, but it will also, you can become mired in it because it's just so consistent and the topic is so repeated. Yeah. I think, um, let's focus on some style elements. I have a quote that I think represents things that I struggled with or certain things that you should expect going in. I pulled this from a poem where it was the one about there was like time is represented being a tree. It's like a extended metaphor or whatever. Mm -hmm. But two, there are two stanzas here that read, Leaves upon time's branch were growing brightly, full of sap and full of silver dew. Birds beneath its shelter gathered nightly. Daily round its flowers the wild bees flew. Sorrow passed and plucked the golden blossom. Guilt stripped off the foliage in its pride. But within its parents' kindly bosom flowed forever life's restoring tide. 
So that quote is a dense one, and it really puts under pressure the entire premise of this podcast because we're in an audio format. And I know for me, I'm a person, for example, who cannot do audiobooks because mm-hmm. I'm a rereader, I'm a highlighter, and a note taker for yeah. the most part. Not always. I'm a you know I like dog earring pages. That's kind of my method now when I'm casually reading, but. I definitely look things over, especially in poetry when it's basically mandatory. So I just read that whole thing and I wouldn't be surprised if a listener checked out and was like, I didn't catch any of that. Like, (laughs) let me read it and take my time with it. And I get it. But let me just pick out a couple of things here. Uh, like there's personification there, but there's also extended metaphor. You have this idea that time is this tree with a branch spreading, mm-hmm. but that also there's other images. It says sorrow passed and plucked the golden blossom. So then is sorrow a person? Is it a moment in nature? Is it kind of a, tor- is it a torturing figure? Is it a, it's sort of like an interrupter or a pest of sorts. And then there's flowers and birds. Those might have their own sort of symbolic meanings. Mm -hmm. It says guilt stripped off the foliage in its pride. So then is guilt, is guilt a part of the tree inherently? Or is it a, is it a person is another entity at the end? It says flowed forever life's restoring tide. So I think I I'd have to look at the whole poem again, but I'm pretty sure the tree is a tree representing life. It's like a large symbol of life. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you had to get out your whiteboard or tack board to even understand half the things I just said, then that's then you're in my brain. Because when I read something <laughs> like that, I really have to pick. If you're going to throw that much density at me, I'm going to try and respond uh, responsibly and like start to try and analyze it a bit. And I just found it. I don't know. I think reading like that is intimidating. I don't mind doing that kind of reading. Uh, it certainly isn't unfamiliar to me. But I can't say that I want to do it that often either. So if you end up feeling like you're paranoid or that you're conspiracy theorist Bob and you're, you know, again, you got the tack board out and the red string, you're just trying to connect all these ideas. I think that's kind of what you have to get into here. It is a bit of deciphering work that has to be done. And so, you know, again, I'll leave it up to the listener to decide if that's the kind of poetry work they want to do. I think a lot of people approach poetry in a much more natural and sort of emotional way where they think, I just want to feel something. I don't want to have to pick this apart. Like it's a decoded message or something. So I don't know if you responded that way, but there's a certain complexity and overlapping depth here that can be imposing at least. For sure. And, and there's a lot of symbolism that you can go through um, and normally that I, I enjoy that. And I also wanted to point out that it's, uh, again, the water image, the restoring tide. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> um, what what the difference is for me, I think, is that, yes, there's a lot of stuff that you could really dig into. But unless I can, I feel like I'm being uh, emotionally invested in it, then I'm not going to want to also take the time to analyze it. So with, for example, when we were reading the Rossetti poetry, um, I enjoyed delving into that a lot more than I enjoyed the um, poems here. It's the same level, I believe, of of density where, and even some of the same themes, right? Because they're both Christian and they both talked about a lot of the same things and, and had a lot of nature imagery. But with Rossetti, I felt like her nature imagery was uh, more emotionally provocative versus... I there are yeah. more relationships. I mean, I think, so to me, I think for you, it, like you said, it's the emotional, emotional uh, provocation. For me, it's just man, the narrative goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Like that goblin market poet had me so gripped 
And I think it was just because there was a situation. I think that's all it takes yeah. for me. I think I'm an easier mark than you in that. Like I, I'm a simpler reader to please perhaps in that way. And that if you just narratively framed some of this stuff, and I, she had a couple in here that kind of had a bit of a story going on. There was one about um, someone who had passed and I think it was kind of a husband, some Edward guy. And it's oh, like, yeah. she's, she's kind of mourning the law. And like that one, at least there was some character stuff for me to begin to piece together things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the poems here that are much more abstract, that are just I- about ideals or ideas. Oh, man, I had a hard time grabbing onto them for sure. I ended up, I ended up with the tack board and the string and just being like, okay, I can, I think I can decipher this, but I didn't respond to any of it. I just kind of had to piece it together. Yeah. Did you have any quotes that you felt were, had that complexity to them? Or did you, did you pull one that you felt like you had a, I don't know, emotional response to at all? Yeah. So the one, um, there were like maybe two poems that I enjoyed. Um, one of them being stars and the other was, um, I had marked it before. I don't remember what it was called. There you go. It's it, her poetry is not exactly the most memorable. Um, <laughs> and some of them were some of them untitled for you as well. I, I had some just untitled. The ones that I found online were um, yeah. the untitled ones. Those were the one-liners. Or some the, of those felt they like they were them. not even finished or unpublished. Like yeah. they dropped off in rhymes. She had a pretty clear ABAB rhyme style for the yeah. most part. And some of the ones that had no title were almost like she was freestyling a bit. It didn't, mm-hmm. or, you know, free verse. It didn't feel as cohesive or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's just like whatever they could find, they just went ahead and published, I suppose, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> including some of yeah. her notes. But- and it, well, did, did you ever join in for the Jane Austen episode we did? I know you and I did the expanded one, but did you ever read what Penguin chose from her? Uh, the, kind of like juvenilia? Yes. Yeah. I, read, I think Penguin's I just not opposed to doing uh, for some of these little collections have kind of a breadth where they, they put in some famous stuff, but then they just throw in some like, and here's some random notes too, or here's some random nonfiction or here's, they did that with Jonathan Swift's Jonathan Swift's a little black classic had, it had two poems. It had nonfiction and a short story. It had like everything, a little hmm. taste. And so they sometimes do that where they're like, yeah, you should read these three poems because they're famous. And then also here's like an unpublished thing in a manuscript we found in, a, you know, in her attic or whatever. Yeah. So I, which I kind of enjoy the breadth of it. But anyway, sorry. No, I, I think that that would be interesting. Like with the Bronte sisters, if we got to see some of maybe their their criticisms of other writers, like when Charlotte yeah, Bronte yeah. Um, like criticized Jane Austen, I found that reading pretty interesting. So if they had that instead of the poetry, I think I would be a lot more inclined to read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Good point. Um, but yeah, there there were like two poems in here that I, I thought were... Um, pretty decent uh that being stars and the other being hope um so i chose a quote from stars which is um blood red he rose and arrow straight his fierce beams struck my brow the soul of nature sprang elate but mine sank sad and low um so she also uh, while she does use a lot of um the the water and wind imagery and it's it's tends to be kind of like dull and boring just because it's overused. Um, She also uses a lot of contrast. And I find myself actually noticing juxtapositions and and contrast a lot um, in writing. And I think it's just because I like the, the almost playfulness of it. And uh, so there was a lot of it here. Yeah. So there is, she does use a lot of contrast and that's, I think what 
kept me going while I was reading her poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we have, and I liked this one too, because um, this poem in particular, because it's not actually uh, the one of the religious ones. <laughs> it's actually sure. yeah. just a yeah. nature one. Um, and actually, so I, I read these poems when I was, I don't, I don't know how long I've had this book, but like a really long time. And this poem um, I read during, um, I think it was my, my grad school years because <laughs> I read it with sure. um, obviously like my previous notes um, were all about like, uh, it was a psychoanalytical reading of it, uh, specifically with a, an emphasis on, on the sexual. So like, but oh, reading it now, I'm like, okay. I'm like, oh, that's a completely different than what I'm seeing now. It's just, it's funny how context and like what's going on in your life at the time is, is what can affect your reading and understanding of like, just a poem. <laughs> Well, I think that relates to a quote I'll throw out there. I do think this is poetry with a capital P, meaning poetry ripe for analytical study. And you, if you have your theoretical lens ready to roll and mm-hmm. you would take it to this poetry, I think it would make for a very fruitful and rewarding study. Um, the quote I pulled here says, My master's voice is low, his aspect bland and kind, but hard as hard as flint, the soul that lurks behind. And I am rough and rude, yet none more rough to see than is the hidden ghost that has its home in me. And I think Again, there's so many, there's a relationship there with a, a masterdom that you could kind of start to pick apart in that psychoanalytic way. Mm-hmm. The rough and rude descriptions mm-hmm. and then admitting to having a hidden ghost, uh, you know, whether that's literal or some kind of part of her soul or spirit or something. Right. I just think, again, I, I also wanted to pull that because of the style of, I mean, both of those sentences or those constructions there are kind of inverted mm-hmm. so it's like you you read the but hard as hard as flint and you're like who's hard the master's voice and then it says the soul that so it's like oh the soul is and so a lot of the construction here is inverted and it just comes across as one old and two challenging i think you know if i if i can put myself in the shoes of a of a casual book reader 2020 whatever whoever that person is out there uh, the the very construction of the sentences here as much as they are i mean it's poetry but the very construction of the lines is a challenge and mm-hmm. it, it will beg rereading because you have to then reassert what modifier is doing what and what something means and and that's not even taking on the symbolic layer or the like you said if you want to apply some kind of psychoanalysis to it or some kind of literary theory it just there's depth and depth if you want to apply it yeah, definitely. I, I agree with the the capital P poetry, um, which normally is, you know, like I that's what I, um, I had a class, a couple of classes actually in college on that. And I enjoy doing that type of reading, but I just didn't yeah. like it so much with this because I, I didn't have any other interest in it other than to possibly try to figure out what she's actually saying. And that's not for enough sure. for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think well, and it's it's how I mean we have the privilege of our podcast together, right? If if I knew I wasn't going to be talking about this with someone, I don't think I'd remember any of this. I mean, I'd remember the thematic stuff in the end, and when I hear Emily Bronte's name now, I'll be like, oh, the one who is obsessed with death, and she was kind of depressed. <laughs> yeah, like that's basically what I'll remember. That'll be my shorthand. Yep. In terms of style and specific flourishes or whatever, if I didn't have to do this, which I love doing and enjoy, but if I didn't have to, yeah, I don't. I'm not sure what I would remember about this at all. That's um. That is actually my main criticism of of these poems is just how forgettable 
they are because mm-hmm. I've, I've read these poems before and I came back to them and I was like, I don't remember this at all. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Like looking mm-hmm. at my notes, I'm like, what? What? <laughs> I, I read that. Yeah, is, that's my handwriting. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps this is a product of our condensed production schedule. We've increased the number that we're doing. Maybe we need to give ourselves more time to read or something. Who knows? I need to do more weekend reading or something. <laughs> Slow yeah. down. Well, yeah, see, no, I, I with agree. the haiku, I think that I'll remember that always. And and I did remember when we talked about yeah. Rossetti, I definitely remembered Goblin Market 100%, right? Yeah. Like, But these poems, I did not remember a single one. Yeah, a lot of uh, the only other quote I'll throw out before we move out of that section is there's a lot of exclamation points in this poetry, maybe not in every stanza, but sometimes it felt that way. And some of the heightened, some of the emotions felt heightened, but I did not rise with them. And again, I think it's because I was just mired in trying to untangle things and parse stuff, just parse lines and parse symbols and imagery. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, there's there's some lines that struck with me. They, d- she describes this dead man's uh, eyes as it says, their orbs grew strangely dreary, clouded, even as they would weep, but they wept not, they changed not, never moved and never closed. And I think there's some there's some eeriness and, and haunting kind of contrast there. And I think the sort of like frozen nature of the eyes and it, it, it all leads to a fixation that I think is well written. And I, I found it to be a, you know, striking couple lines, but... I, the only reason I point that out is to say I reacted to some things like those couple lines, but largely I just felt a bit weighed down, I think. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting that you pointed out that there's a lot of exclamation points because another writer that we had noticed that with, I believe, was um, the one who wrote The Life of a Stupid Man. Um, oh yeah. That, yeah, did he really? Okay, yeah. Akutagawa. Yes, that's who it was, Akutagawa. And uh, but yeah, he used a lot of um, exclamation points as well. And he also wrote a lot about like mortality and death and like kind of the negative aspects of like life. Although he didn't have the hope for an afterlife like uh, Bronte did, but I think it's interesting that both writers also used a lot of exclamation points for such uh, dreary topics. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's take these rather challenging quotes and move to the literary corner. This is certainly a collection of poetry that deserves some kind of literary study. This one I did on shorter order than I'll admit I normally did. I really wanted to find some kind of literary term to tie into the seasons just because we talked about it last week and then it came up again so clearly here. I couldn't find anything in the Oxford Literary Dictionary or in the Penguin one. I'm sure I could have done archetype again, but I think we've done that. So instead, I just plucked a term that I was browsing through and thought that seems relevant to me. It is the literary notion of sensibility, which uh, from the definition is the term that became popular in the 18th century when it acquired the meaning of susceptibility to tender feelings, thus a capacity uh, not for feeling sorry for oneself, so which is so much as being able to identify with and respond to the sorrows of others and respond to, to the beautiful. The quality of empathy was probably a reaction against 17th century Stoicism and Hobbes's theory that man is innately selfish and motivated by self-interest and the power drive. It was a sign of good breeding and good manners to shed a sympathetic tear, for example. And as usually, I, or as usual, I plucked all of the because the Penguin's Literary Dictionary loves to give literary history, so they mention 
you know, like 20 different works or critics or authors who delved into this. And I cut all that out. Mm -hmm. How did you find the poems? Did you find them to have a certain sensibility to them or a certain heightened emotional state? (sighs) Mm. It would make for a fascinating study. I don't mean to put you on the spot because I at least had a chance to think about it when I picked it. Yeah. Because I found them to be, I found them to present as quite emotional up front, especially with regards to the death of others. It seems like an obsession, you know, that this author that had essentially. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. there were certain, there was a certain sensibility. I don't think though it, it resulted in any contemplation of beauty. A lot of it was just sorrow and then hopefulness for ap- for the afterlife. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it captured that part. I don't think she was responding to anything innately beautiful in humankind, but I certainly felt like she was sensitive to loss and was sensitive to how mourning can create paradoxes and contradictions. And it's kind of a leaves you in a maddening state or something. I felt like she had a kind of empathy about that condition, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not sure if I felt like these are the, you know, epitome of sort of romanticism or emotions in that way. But yeah, I I felt like it had a certain kind of sensibility. When I think of uh, sensibility, I think of, um, did you ever read Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen? No, no, but I've, yeah, I've read a couple of her other novels and works. So, um, the, obviously, uh, one of the sisters, there's three sisters in that, that novel. Um, one of the sisters is the one that's, um, got a good hold of her emotions, um, Eleanor. And then the other one, Marianne is, uh, the more, um, mm-hmm emotional one and when i think of sensibility that's who i think of is is how that term applies to marianne and how passionate she is and how vocal she is about her passions and the way that she reads poetry and she only reads poetry that is emotionally provocative here the sensibility might be yes i i felt like she had strong ideas and feelings about what she was writing about on a philosophical level, yeah, but sure. I didn't necessarily get the sense that I didn't feel emotion from what she was writing. Yeah. And it, and it, Oh, it certainly does. And I'm, I'll go a step further and say it, it has that feeling of when you and a person experience something, perhaps what I think the common 2020 example would be you watch a movie with someone and they they cried it and you don't mm-hmm. that that creates that can create such a disconnect where you want to be emotional with them i think or that's often how i feel it's like man i wish i felt that way or i i don't know where the disconnect is that i don't have the connection you had or the reaction right. but i think you can still it's that in between limbo feeling of being able to acknowledge emotion but not reciprocate it yeah. i felt that way reading these like i could tell when she wrote this that her obsession with death and mortality was really provoking things in her. And you, again, cause you just have to break down the poems to see that, but right. I, it felt like arm's length to me very, very much. Like I don't, yeah. I didn't re- respond to any of it really. And so it, I think it, I respected its sensibility when it was there, though it was pretty narrow as well. Again, I don't think she has some vast view of human experience that is sort of like Walt Whitman, like where it's this like orgasmic feeling about all f- humans and all of connection mm-hmm. and yada, yada. It's not like that. It, it was pretty narrow, um, yeah, it would make for an interesting study on sensibility for sure. And certainly death is like a motif or whatever. Yeah, I think that her writing the poetry, it was more of like an intellectual endeavor for her rather than an yeah. emotional one. 
I could see that. That comes across to me. I, I felt that way also. Yeah. Okay. Did you have a literary corner you wanted to throw in this week? No. <laughs> you should. And yeah. fair enough. I don't. I don't. Yeah. And I don't even think we have to do two. I don't even. One. I think is perfectly fine. We don't yeah. want to. We don't want to berate the listeners with education. Right. You know? well, why would we want that? I spend my day time, my day job doing that. Um, <laughs> Let's jump into the actual review segment then. We yep. like to do it in two parts. Part one is the Russell French in memoriam, what is good about it segment. This is genuine praise that we must give the thing we read. I'll start this one. I feel like I've thrown it to you each time. So let me let me pick up the mantle here. Sure. I thought the consistency that Penguin chose was, I, I found it quite striking. And at least I knew from poem to poem that what the tone was roughly going to be, even the topic. And so it felt very cohesive. It's it's all pretty foreboding. It has a lot of, like you nailed, it has a lot of contradiction and juxtaposition in it. And so it creates, I think you can come away from it thinking, I have some coherent ideas about what she believed and what her poetry represents. So to me, it was kind of studyable, to put it mm-hmm. crudely. I think it has a very studyable quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you like about it? Um, I wrote down that I I thought that it was very thoughtfully written and and like mm-hmm. I said before, it's it's obviously an intellectual endeavor, and and it definitely comes through that. And it's it's well written in that there's some yeah. uh, symbolism that you could really go in for. And if you are interested in um, in depth analysis of poetry, I think that her poems could be uh, pretty fruitful in that way. Yeah, certainly. Again, studyable is the uh, yep. the crude term that I'm just whipping up and putting together here, hammering together. Yeah. Let's jump to our numerical ratings. We use a simple rating system here for our reviews and recommendations. It's the three-point scale. A three would mean that you must read this. A two would mean maybe read it. It's a qualified recommendation. And a one means do not read it or pass. Amanda, why don't you start us off? What are you going to rate this one? So I was thinking, I was kind of torn originally between the one and the two. Um, yeah. But after talking, I think I'm going to go with a one Uh, just Mm, because even though there are some things that you could really get from the reading, it's just for me, the purely intellectual aspect of it without any of the draw, the emotional draw is just I don't know that anybody would necessarily get anything other than an analysis of poetry if you read this and it's mm-hmm. just so forgettable. Like I said, like when I was, I've read it before and it's just so forgettable. I didn't remember a single line, a single thought or anything like that. And it's just, it's just not uh, enough of a draw for me. And I enjoy yeah. doing yeah. analysis. So I would imagine that people who have zero interest in actually analyzing poetry would enjoy this at all. <laughs> This is going to be a one for me as well. I will happily slide this into the category of, wow, catch me in my undergrad years. I'll write the paper on this, but do I want to spend my leisure time or, you know, now that I'm not a student anymore, do I want to spend my reading time engaged in this? Not really, not especially. I, I think poetry has its place even in 2020 as an art form or whatever, even if it's a limited one. But yeah, I don't think I could recommend this for really any strong reason other than you want to know literary history or you want to know about the Brontes or you want to just analyze poetry and write papers or whatever, apply literary lenses and theoretical lenses to things. I think though it's roundly a one. I was kind of torn as well. I admired the cohesion of it and I kind of 
after a few of them kind of got rolling on, oh, yes, I know what the tone of this will be. I know what mood this is evoking. Mm -hmm. And so I respected that. But no, I think it's a safely a one. I don't think any person needs to just go out and pick this up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it definitely cast the haiku last week, which I did commit to a three on. I didn't feel 100% great about that, but I felt like I wanted to stand up for the haiku. It cast a strong light on those because I, thinking back to them now, I had so such strong emotional reactions to at least three or four of those. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, r- respect in, uh, you know, looking back to the haiku. Yeah, agreed. Like it definitely, while I was reading this, I was like, can I go back and and read some of that haiku instead? Mm -hmm. I mean, the imagery was just, I mean, phenomenal. And and I didn't really get a a, a great sense of imagery in this. So it's meh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Certainly a dour sense of it. Yeah, the images are, yeah, they're dour and they're going to be, there's too much overlapping personification. That was the other literary corner I wanted to pull. I feel like there were a lot of capital words in this one. Oh, for sure. certain concepts taking human form and just like it felt very it's quite dense hopefully yeah. our our quotes proved that earlier as always amanda thanks so much for joining we had again a fruitful discussion about a book we did not love uh, <laughs> here's another behind the scenes production thing i posted the episode this so when we're recording this the episode that went up this week was the leo tolstoy one and mm. so <laughs> i know i know my mom at least listened to it and i don't know how many others because i tried on the instagram and facebook post to be I don't know, a little positive about it, I guess, but I it was just basically saying, you know, it can be insightful to understand why you dislike something so much. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't dislike this to nearly that level, but this is another one that I think is a strong pass. So yeah, yeah it felt, felt connected across the timelines. Um, we will be back next week as always with another book review. It is a controversial figure, but an important one in my reading life who is Joseph Conrad. I think it's a short story. I th- believe tomorrow might also be some poems. Maybe. I don't know. Ooh. Yeah. So we're venturing into Conrad territory next week. Please join us for that. And always until next time, we'll see you between the classics. <laughs> <laughs>